Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Lunch with Tech Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Lance. We're here to talk about programming with ChatGPT and AI. Here to join me, I have Henrik. He's a huge practitioner of AI. He was a big contributor to Minecraft. He's an agile coach and climate change activist. He was rated a top dev in Sweden. I mean, what, what haven't you done? <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I just a quick background. I guess Agile Coach is more in my past. Now I guess I, I call myself an AI whisperer. How about that for a lofty title? But it's like the closest it. thing I can think of what I do. I'm trying to figure out this AI stuff and it's, it's very interesting. But yeah, background doing um, uh, a lot of coding stuff, Agile stuff, um, Minecraft development was, was uh, <laughs> I did that for a few years. And now I'm working with you on the Ace Project, which is very fun. Right now working as a chief scientist at a startup in Sweden called Hubs.com, which is about helping companies become self-improving. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, um, it, the ACE project uh, for people that don't know, which is you know, it's still it's still a new, relatively new open source project. But we're working on an autonomous AI system that has uh, six layers to uh, cognition, and it's a, it's a cognitive architecture that we're experimenting with to see if we can't uh, replicate sort of like a human, something autonomous that can act like a human when they're trying to solve really complex problems. Building autonomous systems like AutoGPT, they can sometimes um, get stuck or maybe go off the rails. Uh, and we're hoping that with these six layers, uh, it can curb some of that, those problems. Yeah, and help us maybe build, help people build autonomous agents that don't necessarily destroy the world, which is, which is good. Yes, yes, with heuristic imperatives. <laughs> Adam's here all the time, so I didn't think you needed an introduction, but you definitely deserve one. So, Adam, go ahead. Hi, everyone. Uh, excited to be part of Lance's first episode he's hosting. So that's great. Lance is a big member of the community here and excited to be part of your first podcast. Lance, I know you've been on the show many times when I've hosted, but I'm glad to, to be an impromptu guest here. ChatGPT changed my life. It's changed the way I program. I've written many uh, Python scripts and applications to help automate my daily flow. I find ways to use the tool, new ways to use the tool almost daily. So I'm very excited about this topic and passionate. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind that people still don't get it. People are still spending money on coding boot camps and stuff. <laughs> and the other day I had this random thought that I want to share, and I think it's good for the, for the beginning of the show, is I feel like so when I, when I was growing up, I was really into Star Trek, and particularly Star Trek The Next Generation. And if you've ever watched it, you can, you'll see the way that the people on the Star Trek Enterprise communicate with the computer system. They have a natural language. They talk to it. Um, <laughs> it it's a back-and-forth dialogue. And my, my random thought was, like, if, you, if anyone's ever watched Star Trek The Next Generation, you've basically taken a course on prop, prompt engineering, just the way that they interact with the computer. Um, so anyways, I thought that was an interesting tidbit. Now I'll let you kick off your show here. No, yeah. I mean, uh, just to tag along with that uh, really quickly, do you think that, and we, maybe we can segue into this topic first, do you think that natural language is going to be the future programming language? Or do you think there will always be a place for programming languages? Great Both question. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. I do think that... Interesting topic to delve into. Very interesting topic. I think yeah. natural language processing, NLP, has made significant strides in recent years, which has allowed for more intuitive interactions between humans and computers. I believe there will always be a place for traditional programming languages. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. He listened in. <laughs> I mean, I'll steal your thunder, Lance. Like, however good your co-pilot is, you still need a pilot, at least for now. So I do think there's a place for 
having that you need the domain expertise like right if i want to create software for veterinary <laughs> clinic i think the 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 place the thing that won't go away is a human who understands the domain and understands the pain that the software is trying to solve and how you interact with your ai in order to develop the application it could very well be a lot of it hands off and not writing much code maybe I mean, I, I do think it'll get there one day. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, though. Like, I think there's a there's a place for coders. But do you think do you think that programming languages themselves will still need to be a thing? Because I think that language programming languages serve a different purpose than natural language do. When I'm expressing logic in programming languages, <clears throat> I expect it to do the thing that I've told it to do. And I, I, I have an input and an output that I, I know, you know, with pretty good certainty that this is the outcome. But when it's a natural language system, maybe I'll, the output that I get will be maybe 95% accurate based on what, you know, what I've done. And I've seen this in systems where, you know, I'll have hundreds of simultaneous users using the system at once. And I've done all this automated testing where I, I figured out, I figured that it's responding every time I ran the test, it responded the way I wanted it to respond. But then <laughs> when, when you have a hundred users using the system, that 5% really bleeds out quick. Yeah. When it comes to the, do we need, I guess it's two different questions. Do we need programming languages and do we need programmers? <laughs> when it comes to the question, do we need programmers? I like to abstract that question to more like, do we need role X, whatever it is, a lawyer, <laughs> doctor, programmer, etc. And my theory from the perspective of having worked with this as a programmer for a while is, yeah, we still need the people for a while that people can do stuff, but we're kind of limited. Uh, we're slow, etc. AI can't really do much on its own right now, but put an AI together with a human and you get superpowers. It's like magic. Uh, but the person is still needed. As a developer, for example, I need to know what is the right way to phrase this question. I need to be able to decide what code should I include. If I'm editing a code base, which is the most common case, I need to know which code do I give it so that it can give me a good answer. I need to be able to evaluate what comes out. And there's all kinds of places where I'm needed, but the AI gives me superpowers. And I, and I would speculate that it's the same for any role. So if I go to a doctor, I wouldn't want to have a doctor being just the AI. I'd be a bit freaked out. I don't think it would do a good job. And I wouldn't want the doctor to be just a human, but you put them together, then it's again, probably magic, at least for a while. And then later on, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but as for the programming language question, my, my theory there is programming language is human speak. Humans need programming languages, but they're designed to be easy for humans to read. Machines don't need programming languages. They just need the ones and zeros essentially. So I think as long as we're pair programming with AI, we need the programming language as our common vocabulary. But as the AIs get better and better programming, at some point we can cut the human out of the loop. And the human just gives an instruction high level, the AI writes the code, then we don't need the code. In the same sense that when I write high level code in Java or something, it gets translated to machine code. I don't need to look at that machine code. I trust that it's correct. So in the same sense, right. if I'm talking to an AI and it's writing the code, why not just write the machine code? Because I'm not gonna read the other code anyway, and it's designed for humans. Right. If you look at the evolution of um, aviation, from when it started in the early 1900s until the launch of the 747 in 1969. There was like 70 years of rapid innovation. And then since then, in the last 50 years, commercial flight has pretty much, I mean, of course they're upgrading the, you know, there's Wi-Fi on the plane now, there's all these electronics, but like the fundamental technology kind of plateaued. And I think it's interesting to look at the history of programming and software we're right about that 60, 70 year mark. And I'd like to see less proliferation of all these languages and frameworks and tooling. Like, I think yeah. this is my hot take. Like, it's just, there's just too much. Like, I do think if there was a way that the industry could shrink down the number of languages that are in use, the number of tooling and frameworks, it would be beneficial. And I think, <clears throat> and I never connected the dot you just made, where like AI doesn't even need a programming language. It can just write the ones and zeros, and we don't even care what the language is. So that's that's really interesting to see that the combination of AIs working with human might actually kind of lead us to less proliferation of all these languages and frameworks and, and all this I, stuff. I, I, I think code might will still have a place because code is a way for humans to express exact instructions. 
that are that mm-hmm. without any ambiguities. And no, human normal language doesn't do that. So there may be still cases where we need to do that, but it won't be the day-to-day normal case, I think. It'll be interesting to see AI having to contribute to libraries like open source um, because you mentioned like build tools and stuff like that one of the biggest tools that i appreciate when you know exploring a new programming language is the community and whether or not it has a library whether or not it has a good and robust library management system like npm or ruby gems or you know it can get go was really frustrating in the beginning because it was it was interesting that they were using Git repositories, but sometimes it was hard to find the the really good projects and just getting the open source community to agree on standards and decent libraries to to use is can be difficult. So if you have a robust community, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if AI can take that on that challenge on too, because I don't think I do think that you know maybe they do end up just writing everything in binary. But I still think that there's going to be multiple AIs out there, and they're going to want to have their kind of GitHub open source community too. What do you think? Yeah, and there's also some, something you lose. I guess even the AI is what they lose if they just write the machine code is they lose the why. Like, why, if I read normal code, it, there's an implied, like, what does this function do? Well, it could read the name of it. But when my machine code, there's no function names. Um, so I guess even as an AI, you might want some context. But maybe code, as we know of it, maybe is not the most effective way of expressing that. <laughs> But on the other hand, I, I think the thing about programming languages is disappearing. I think that's very far off because as long as there's any need for humans to also be in the loop, then we need to understand the code or at least have a chance to understanding. So now it's interesting because when the a when when GPT four for example produces code, it produces code that is really well, uh, like really easy to read, more more readable code than most humans I know. So it's clear that it is trying to make something that is for us that it really didn't need, but because it's going to interface with us and collaborate, do collaborative coding, then I think the high-level languages are going to be still around for quite a while. <laughs> did, you, did you notice that sometimes, OK, so yes, it does code pretty well uh, by default, clean code. And that was probably influenced by its sort of you know standard deviation of this is what the internet thinks is good. But yeah. I noticed that when I, I tapped into my favorite developers in the Ruby programming language, and I, I assumed their persona, their writing style improved dramatically. Um, I wonder if there was any like Python equivalents or I don't know if you have any any thoughts yeah, no, on I, that. I haven't, I haven't tinkered so much with, like I like giving it personality in all kinds of contexts, but I haven't tried giving it a personality when writing code. But it would be fun, write code in the style of pretend that you're Linus Torvalds and write this yes. code now. Like yes. what, what would happen? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Based on all of the writing and whatnot, you know, you know, for Java, there's probably Uncle Bob, so you can write solid code. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that write, you know, clean code in Ruby, uh, books about clean code in Ruby, and it literally takes everything that they've ever said and distills it into a programmer. It's it's mm-hmm. insane. It's amazing. But yeah, it's an yeah. interesting time to be a programmer. Like I've, like I've been programming on and off for like what thirty years now, and and I never thought something would come along that completely changes the way I work at every level. But that's what's happened now, and that's kind of fascinating. What tools do you use right now? So, do you do you use ChatGPT? Uh, do you and copy and paste? Do you use Copilot? Um, it's almost embarrassing. I've been trying all these fancy fancy tools that show up that are supposed to be able to work with you in your code base, but they all seem kind of proof of concepty so far. Because when it comes to actually working, they 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 don't. At least for, as far as I've seen, they're just cool for little demo things, like you know, write create the game of worms or something or the snake, whatever it's called. So when it comes to actual day-to-day real-life coding, it's just two things. It's um, GitHub Copilot for the basic things, like I'm function, you know, I'm about to write a, name, a function. I write the name of the function, boom, there comes the rest of the code. So for simple things such as adding new code, it does that pretty well. And then for anything more advanced, I just use GPT-4 and copy-paste. So my workflow is just figure out what code is needed for GPT to be able to do the job, paste it in, <laughs> and say, fix this, boof, out comes something else, stick it in. <clears throat> Nowadays, I often don't even read the code. I just stick it in because it tends to work. <laughs> really? Um, but if it's a little more complicated, then I, I might have a bit of discussion and iterating about it. But I, 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 like the, the skill that I've had to hone is the skill of knowing how to phrase my prompt, knowing mm. exactly which part of the code to include, and knowing when I need to critically evaluate the code versus just stick it in and run it. <laughs> what would you say contributes to having a better prompt for you when you're programming than a worse one? 
Um, I guess it's really the basic communication, like what do I actually want to achieve here? What's my goal? So instead of saying, change this for statement in the following way, I would say, like, let's say I have some kind of a, a game. I'm making a game, right? And instead of saying, change this code in the following way and describe it technically, I would say, make the character die when he has no more health and then leave the details to GPT. So that kind of going at a, at a higher level. Or like, for example, I, I made, I was working on, on a game and I had a, it's a, it had a web interface, which looked kind of ugly. So for a while I was fiddling around, I was saying, could you make, move this button a little bit to the right? I was using a, a web framework that I wasn't so familiar with. So I had to ask it all the time for little things. But after a while I'm like, wait a sec, Henrik, stop, take a step back. You know, what are you trying to achieve? I want to make the UI look nice. I want to make it more, look, look more like a game and less like a boring corporate website. And that was my prompt. I wrote that as a prompt. And boom, it just rewrote a ton of code, gave it to me, and it looked like a game and not like a corporate website. So I realized that's what I should have done from the beginning. So f- think about the problem you want to solve rather than the code you wanted to write. That's, that's I think, my main tip. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yes. Have you, have you experimented with higher-level systems design? Uh, yeah. Um, I've been really impressed. I've been bu- when I've been building new things, I normally start with, um, you know, here's a problem I want to solve. What's a high-level architecture for that, and which tool stack would you, or which which uh, which tech stack would you would you suggest for that? And then I t- and I tell it, please interview me if you need any if you need any more context. Don't just jump to conclusions. And then we basically have this very very high-level advanced discussion that I would expect to have with a like a senior software architect. And it usually boils down to saying, okay, here's the suggested tech stack. And then I would typically from there saying, okay, can you create a scaffolding hello world for me for that, just so I can get started. But, but And sometimes in the middle of a product, I'll take a step back and say, uh, okay, here's how it works at a high level. Unfortunately, because of, of um, token limits, you can't put in the whole code base, really. So I would mm-hmm. pick some main parts of it and say, here's my system. Please critically evaluate this. Or sometimes I would even just point to a GitHub project, to point to my GitHub project, say, look at this. Here are the key polls you should look at. Read those files. Give me a, a critical evaluation from an architect perspective. And then we have a discussion about it. Yeah, like it blew me away how much it could inference by just ha- not having the full amount of context, but like you could paste some of the relevant files yeah. and it could figure it out. Yeah. I'm really surprised by that too, actually. And now with the image thing, it'll be even more interesting because I have, it's just for fairly new, but like what stuff I want to try now is I like to draw when I'm planning. So uh, to go from a messy mural or whiteboard sketch, here's my idea for this architecture, take a picture of it, and just say, what do you think of this? And then have it iterate on it and then say, okay, now build it. <laughs> Boom. And it, it'll, it won't be complete. There'll be some placeholder code and stuff, but it'll still save us a ton of time. But the magic, I think, will be when it can generate pictures on its own. Now it has mm-hmm. Dolly and stuff, but that's not useful. It can't make architecture diagrams or anything like that. But when we get to the point where you can give it a messy architecture drawing and just say, help me iterate on this. And then it goes in there and draws with you, adds another box, adds another arrow, moves something. Then we'll, I think we'll get to a whole other level of, of collaborative uh, design and coding. Have you actually, have you experimented with Mermaid, the language? No. That's the what, diagram what, what, run, that? right? Yeah, you can, you can, you can get ChatGPT to output in the Mermaid format. And then when you paste it into, it's Mermaid.js as a diagramming yeah. uh, software. Uh, it will actually, so, so ChatGPT can express what it's thinking in, gra- you know, these architectural diagrams. Um, they're not fancy like Miro, but it, it's definitely closer than you would think. It's interesting. Yeah, I've seen I've seen embryos of that, like just playing with the uh, advanced data analytics mode with ChatGPT, telling it to generate pictures. There's also various plugins in GPT that'll generate diagrams. Maybe they use Mermaid in the background. I'm not sure. But what tends to come out, so far I haven't found a single case where I was like, oh yeah, that was a useful diagram. So yeah, I'm not sure yeah. what's missing, but maybe the thing that's missing is taking my picture and editing it. And then... Somehow, then I think it'll get more. You'll get this back and forth. Um, so I, I think it's really close. All the pieces are there. So it's just that little bit of extra f- for it to become truly useful. I was playing around with the ChatGPT <clears throat> voice assistant feature on my phone last night, just having some conversation with it. But mm-hmm. I think that could be really powerful. I want to mm-hmm. try it. On, I don't know if it's usable. If you can actually connect it to like my web browser and have a conversation with the AI. And it would be interesting to like speak to it rather than speak to it about what I want from a coding perspective uh, yeah. versus trying to craft the perfect prompt. That'll be in- real interesting. And I thought I'm Copilot gonna... was a little too intrusive for my liking. 
I, yeah. I'm strictly ChatGPT. I like to kind of go to ChatGPT when I'm stuck or I need some some higher level thinking in terms of like what I'm the problem I'm trying to approach. And I I do think it was really interesting to see. I don't know if you guys recently saw, but like GitHub Copilot is like losing money per user. They're averaging a twenty dollar loss per user per month. Oh wow! Um, and, so, and some as high as eighty per month. So like they're the economics <laughs> of Copilot are not great. Um, I'm sure they're gonna fix it. It adds a lot yeah. of value. <laughs> yeah, but um, but when it comes to the voice thing, I've been experimenting a lot with that since it showed up in my phone, and I w- I'd like to share two quick tips for anyone listening that really make a difference. <laughs> One is that it's it's in the phone, so you can talk. It's not in the web browser by default, but mm. you can have a conversation on the phone and then see that conversation in your web browser. So in effect, you can still mix talking and and still use your web browser. But the other more important tip is if you use the two-way thing at the top right, there's a little icon like uh, with the mm-hmm. headphones, then it will both mm-hmm. listen to you and speak back. That oh, wow. feature was useless, I thought, because it kept interrupting me at the wrong moment. It's really bad at figuring out when should it respond. So you just pause for a second to think a little bit, and then suddenly it will barge in. Mm-hmm. And even if you ask it to wait, it doesn't. Yeah. However, I found a very surprising feature is that if you hold your finger on it, Th- then it doesn't speak until you let go. Interesting. They don't hmm. advertise that in any way. So then it becomes super, super useful suddenly because you can just you know speak your mind and don't have to worry about it interrupting at any moment and then just let go. I built an app using this uh, before and I, I know exactly why that happens like when I was implementing it. And you can set how many seconds that it waits before it starts up again. Yeah. But by, yeah, by default, it, it will interrupt you if you if you pause too long. And it can be like, unless you know what you're wanting to say and you're trying to dictate to it, it's like having a button to press is better. Yeah. It's, it's hard for humans to know when to butt in, you know? So. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the AI can't even see your expression. So how, how would it know? Right? Being quiet does not mean the other person should start talking. So uh, I think that's just an almost, an almost impossible algorithm to crack without, without vision. Not to mention, the longer it waits, it, that can be a frustrating experience yeah. when you're trying to push out. Yeah. yeah, especially if you're using ChatGPT4, it takes a while for the prompt in general. And then if you had that pause in there, like I was playing around with it last night, it was a little clunky, but like it just blows my mind. As soon as this thing has short-term and long-term memory, yeah, I could just see it like in my ear all day. Like just t- I'm talking to the AI. I'm using it for things like remind me to get the grocery. Like I, I, I could see this like a cyborg future where like this is just part of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I have the AI connected to me almost at all times, and I'm leveraging yeah. it in like in almost yeah, everything yeah, the, I the, do. The past few, uh, like the past week or so, I've, I've been taking a walk every day, a t- pretty long walk sometimes, and just talking. I feel, I feel like a, a weird weirdo walking around, but I live in the countryside, so not, not a lot of people see me. But I'm walking around and just talking and and sharing my thoughts. And then it'll reflect back my thoughts and sometimes summarize, give me tips. And I feel like, wow, I have this kind of genius um, buddy walking next to me the whole time. And then after <laughs> the talk, walk, I can just say, can you summarize everything we said, the most important points I should remember? And then boom, I have a plan for the day or an architecture for the thing I'm working on or a plan for whatever problem I'm trying to solve. It's incredible. That's pretty awesome. I haven't tried that on a walk yet. I'm hoping if people see me that they think I'm in a call with a human or something. <laughs> that feels <laughs> pretty awkward. <laughs> it's like the movie Her, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I've used also when, I, when I'm going to give a talk, then I practice the talk. I, I, I go for a walk and I, I, I just do the talk and I, I pause sometimes and say, hey, give me feedback. And it gives me feedback and then I, okay, and then I keep doing my talk. So by the time I get back home, I've re- rehearsed the whole thing and gotten super useful feedback. <laughs> now, when you're, when you're writing code, I'm sure, I don't know if you're, uh, I'm not really a test-driven person. I, I kind of vacillate between the two. I was more of a test-driven person when I was new to test-driven development, but I do like writing tests, and I definitely see value in it. Um, but maybe when there's a team involved, maybe when uh, there's more at stake and there's more code already being used by users, do you use, have you used GPT to write tests, help you write tests uh, and, and do all that? Yes, um, I'm kind of similar to you. In the beginning, I, I did. I, there was I was more kind of hardcore TDD guy, um, and then I became more pragmatic over the years. So now I use it when it's needed. Sometimes I write tests first. Sometimes I write tests after. Sometimes I don't write tests at all, depending on the code. So, but typical case where I do write tests is either if it's non-trivial code, if it's non-trivial code, and it has no external dependencies, then I'll definitely write write a test. But sometimes also if 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 it's just complicated in general, then I might want to simulate using a black box testing from the outside. 
and nowadays, uh, to my surprise, I I just I use GPT for it every time. So sometimes I take a bit of code and I say write a test for it, and sometimes I do the opposite. I write a test and I tell GPT write code for it, and either way is fine. Mm-hmm. But I also learned something. I was building something in uh, in Python, and I didn't. I'm not good at Python. I'm kind of still getting used to it. So uh, and I was like, I want to write a test for this really p- icky piece of code that has weird dependencies. And I just said, write a test for it. And then not only did it make a useful test, I also learned something about how to mock stuff in Python, which was really useful. Well, it's a crazy useful learning tool. I mean, I think that any junior developer, if they're not using uh, ChatGPT on a regular basis, is crazy. I mean, I don't even care if you're at school and learning it. Like one thing that makes me upset is when sometimes people are like, no, but don't don't use it for coding if you're young and learning it, because then that's cheating. But I, I sat just the other day with my 13-year-old son, my youngest, and we were going to do some Unity programming. And then so we brought up ChatGPT. I was curious how good is ChatGPT at Unity programming. So I, I told him, okay, let, let's let this guy be your assistant. What would you like your assistant to be like? He's like, I want, I want him to be like a drunk, funny guy. Okay, so we configured GPT to be like a drunk, funny guy. And then we basically, uh, we, I'm like, okay, what do you want to build? I want to build a, a ship, and there's cannonballs coming flying at it, and I want to run to avoid them. And uh, so, okay, let's first just make the ship. So he, he wrote in Unity, like, I want to make a ship in Unity. How do I, or he wrote in ChatGPT, I want to make a ship in Unity. How do I do it? And it gave him pretty exact instructions, but speaking like a funny drunk guy. And then, <laughs> and then we spent the whole day coding, and he's not even super interested in coding. But he, the whole day, he was basically like, this is the most fun I've ever had with coding. Like, I, re- yeah. I love coding. This is so fun. And I never heard him say that before, because he would never get stuck. There was always a way forward. And sometimes if he didn't understand the code, he would say, I don't understand this. What does this do? Because he mm-hmm. wants to understand the code so he can tinker with it. So then this funny drunk <laughs> assistant would be explaining like, oh, it does this and it does that. And you know, you should do it. You know, It was just a really fun way to get, like, I-, I could see how he just got so engaged and he was learning so fast because of this. The best teachers are gr- drunk, funny people that are <laughs> yeah. they're more engaging. <laughs> and a uh, drunk, yeah. funny guy who who's, has infinite patience that will always be on your side and help you. Never, never, never get upset or tired of you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that never-ending feedback. It's always interesting when it uh, spits out a line of code that I don't understand at all, and you know, some sophisticated parsing or reg expression that I would never be able to write on my own, and just how powerful that is. Like, and then yeah. I can put that line of code. I'll look at the code. And I'll be like, man, I wonder what that does. Take that line of code. Explain this to me, like I'm a three-year-old, because yeah. I don't know what you did here, and it's great. Like it. I could have spent half a day on Stack Overflow trying to figure out what this line of code is doing, or right yeah. when when I just the the power of it just to. So I agree with you 100%, Henrik. Uh, that if you're junior or learning, it's not cheating; it's accelerating. Yeah, right? I guess as long as I mean, you, yeah, if you're just copy you... and pasting the coding blindly and you have no idea, like yeah. sure, but like you're gonna know as soon as you run the code um, that it's there's a problem with it because it's not behaving as you expected. So you're gonna have yeah. to interact with the ai to be like this isn't doing what i want uh you know and it's yeah it's super powerful yeah it can be frustrating it seems to be the the default state to want to understand the code because you want to tinker with it it can be frustrating though when you copy and paste and you get these errors and you paste them back in and you're and gpt's like gives you an answer back to try and fix it and you go in these circles where it's like no it's just not working i think just like i was sitting next to him so that's kind of like there's some cases where it did get stuck in a loop and then I had to help a little bit. So it's, it's, so it's, not, it's not perfect. Uh, it'll sometimes get stuck in a loop. And then if you don't know any coding and don't have anyone to ask for, then you can definitely get in trouble. But I would say net, the net effect is still positive um, rather yeah. than negative in terms of learning. I have a funny story um, where it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's similar to the, the GPS that tells you to like turn into a lake. Right, and you you take your car and you you turn into the lake. So the other day, I'm having a really struggling trying to get this client's. Uh, we I'm a consultant, so we're, we're trying to help them with their infrastructure as code. Having a lot of trouble with their repo, getting it to to build and compile. And uh, you know, ChatGPT recommended that I uninstall Python on my machine and Thanks. and uh, reinstall it. And I'm on Ubuntu. <laughs> you know, just to be fair, I I was a Windows guy for most of my career. When I started this new job, I switched to Ubuntu, which I love. And so, and ChatGPT's like, well, but be careful on installing Python because it, a lot of things in Ubuntu depend on Python. And I was just like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to follow what, uh, what ways tells, which direction it tells me to go. 
uninstalled Python, and then and there you go into the lake. <laughs> there, and all of a sudden, I'm on a headless version of Ubuntu. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh yeah, maybe you know, sometimes you know, maybe you shouldn't. If it tells you to turn into a lake, uh, maybe you shouldn't just drive your car right into a lake. Yeah. <laughs> But it warned me. It's like, and it was like in bold letters, like, "Be careful with this. A lot of things in Ubuntu depend on uh, Python." Well, at least that's good. Okay. But, yeah. But, yeah. But with that, good? I'll finish my story. Is uh, oh. so then I got ChatGPT on my phone, and I'm it's helping. It helped me recover my OS in record time, right? Oh, right. I, I turned it back on. I got my phone. I said, "Okay, I uninstalled Python on Ubuntu, and now I'm." I'm on a black command line screen with nothing. And it's like, okay, we'll do this, this, and this. And then, you know, I'm, I'm basically back up and running in five, in 10 minutes, I call it. I, th I thought you were going to say, you screwed this up for me. Now you fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I just held it to my, I held the phone to my laptop and I used the voice and I said, fix it. Yeah. But that's an interesting use case for the phone. Actually, when you have a, a screen full of error messages, you just take a picture, boof, fix it. Mm. <laughs> that's funny. I wonder how I can we can get it out of these these loops sometimes where it's just confused. Uh, I know that part of it's interesting because if you're using the API, you're you're not. I, I'm pretty sure that the way that ChatGPT behaves is a little bit different than the way the API behaves because I think that there is a, I think there's some recursive summarization that goes on with ChatGPT yes. in the Definitely. way, and that's why it has short-term memory, <laughs> and it works pretty mm -hmm. well. I actually, um, yeah. Uh, over the weekend, I was I was just sick of working, so I decided to play a game of Civilization VI. And uh, the experiment I had was like, what if I asked like uh, ChatGPT for every single move? And it was it blew me away. What what input did you give it? I said, well, I said, okay, I'm I'm gonna do uh, I want to do a military uh, be a, be a military leader, and I want to do a Dominion victory. And it said, you know, choose Genghis Khan. And so, it, and uh, I, I chose. Uh, well, I realized I didn't have Genghis Khan on my on my thing, and I'm like, oh, I didn't. I forgot. I didn't upgrade my uh, civilization. So then I got Genghis Khan. So it was cool. It was like troubleshooting yeah. how to be like find more uh, cool things in the game. And then I'm like, okay, give me your first ten moves, and it, and then uh, it it gave me a really good uh, structure for how to start the game. And then I kept asking, I kept telling it, okay, I'm on this turn, and these things happened. Uh, what should I do? And what should I research? What? And it told me everything. It was really but, but you fun. know you know it's weird. Like I keep getting blown away about what GPT four can do, and there's a lot of things that it used to not be able to do, such as math, which it does fairly well now. But the other day when I was tinkering with the with the image thing, I just you know, I took a picture of a Sudoku in a newspaper and it completely botched that one. I was, that's interesting. And I started looking at it more closely. I tried to find the simplest possible brain dead simple Sudoku and it botched it again. I was like, what? And I asked GPT, can you write a manual for a beginner for how to solve Sudoku? And it wrote this very clear, concise, with really concrete tips for a beginner. And then I said, follow your own manual and solve this dead simple Sudoku. It did three moves and then it got lost. So that was really interesting. There's just some mm. something is missing in its model of the world that just makes it not be able to grok this matrix of numbers. And and I felt yeah. that was bad for it because it noticed that it was failing. I'm like, oh wait a sec, wait, this doesn't add up right. Let, let me try again. And it kept trying and kept failing and kept trying. After a while, I'm like, never mind, forget it. You know. <laughs> I haven't really tried uh, playing too many games with it, and I'm curious. It will tell you how to beat a game very well and give you the high level, you know instruction for how you could do that another thing i tried was i was playing uh this card game called um it's a card game that oh, i forgot what it's called but it, it's fun it's got it's got uh it's kind of a resource it's also almost like a civilization game but with cards and you get to gather right. gems and resources and you know sometimes i sneak away and i'm like before the game starts i'm like how do i play this how do what are good strategies for playing this game and then i'll come back and then i'll like I'll be suddenly really good, and it's. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's the spatial thing that it doesn't that it's struggling with. With, with Sudoku, it's very spatial, mm. but with other others, like in your Civ thing, it's not spatial in the same way. And maybe with the cards, I don't know. I'm just speculating, but it's just it, interesting well, to see this kind of gap in its logic. Civ has like units and stuff you can move around, but I don't think that the overall strategy with Civ was those micro movements of units and stuff wasn't a detriment to well I, i'm already pretty good maybe at moving the unit so it was just yeah. handling it was the same strategy uh, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean there have, there have been tests there are some simple tests you can do like uh i saw one where you just say um bob is in the southwest corner of the room looking north jim is in the north corner looking east 
and you describe the situation and then you say uh, w- what is Bob seeing right now? And then it's mm. like, Bob is seeing the left side of Stacy's head. And it's like, it's clearly understanding the spatial relationship of things. So it seems to have some model for it, but apparently there are gaps in it. That's why I can't solve Sudoku. <laughs> have you tried uh, that same puzzle on three, five versus four? Because four was the version that they supposedly gave all the uh, visual information to. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I, I, this, this was with, with four. I would really be curious to see what it does on three five. I bet you it, it will just completely mess it up. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting. We uh, Henrik and I are working on this ACE framework together. Uh, like we said, it's supposed to kind of mimic human executive functioning. And the reason I got into it was because I've been trying to write an autocoder for a long time now. I've, I've failed maybe three or four times in different languages, but th- I've learned a lot from the experience of, of trying to automate these things. And uh, yeah, so like it's, it's interesting to, I like talking about the situation where debugging is, uh, debugging is one of the hardest problems because, uh, so if, if we figured out debugging, I think that we're really close to figuring but out is it like i don't know uh, in my experience with code generation what 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 I, what I noticed was if i ask if i have gpt generate code and run it on my machine it'll sometimes get it wrong because it's making assumptions about how the code is going to be used let's say it's a a function mm-hmm. called download web page yep. and the code is, assumes an http but actually it was https or something so it fails but when it fails you now have a stack trace an error message, the original source code, and the input parameters, and maybe some logs as well. All that information to give back to GPT is they fix it. Just like with a human, with all that information and a, and a reproducible problem, it's normally quite easy to fix. So my experience so far is that debugging is kind of the, the easier part, because then you have to be concrete. But maybe you're referring to some, some other aspect of it, or? Um, like compile issues sometimes. Um, I don't know. It was just uh, maybe I didn't give it enough context, but I, there have been numerous times where, for the most part, debugging is is pretty good. I would say, but uh, I I think it writes code better than it debugs at the moment. Mm. But that's been my experience at least. I guess it maybe um, depends on if the bug is. So, yeah, I can see how a compile error would would be hard for it to debug because it maybe dependent on all all kinds of stuff in your environment. But yeah. if it's just a stack trace inside the code, then it's more self contained. Like. All the yeah. information is here, and I'll just fix it. Yeah, and that's it's interesting. I, I like the, I like to say that, you know, if it, if ChatGPT got it wrong, or it hallucinates, those two problems are most likely because it's missing context. Yeah, yeah, that's that's been a huge surprise to me over the, over time. I've realized that most of the time when it fails, it's not it failing; it's me failing in my right. in my um, ambiguous instructions or my mistakes in the instructions, or I just gave it the wrong not not enough context and then it had to guess like a human would do and in fact a human would have probably failed under the same circumstance yeah so so i guess the, the only situation the main situation is now where if i do everything right it'll still fail if it relies on up-to-date on apis that have changed recently which is ironic because that means that oh you can't use chat gpt to write code that uses chat gpt it doesn't know the open ai api which is ironic uh, because the OpenAI API has changed so much, so that whenever I do anything using generative AI, I first write the little piece of code that talks to OpenAI. I, f- I write that myself, and I give that as input, or just tell GPT, I have a function for talking to OpenAI, OpenAI you don't have to do it, but you write everything else, because that part it can't do. <laughs> There's a couple questions in the chat room. We got Bill M. asking, uh, do you see more prompt engineering working into comp- computer science and or other college curriculums? Do you think prompt engineering will become its own it's a college question. course. I I hope so. It should. No. It's I think it's crucial. I don't know how long time it'll be crucial, but but right now it's an absolute crucial skill. In fact, more important to learn that than to learn the the specific details of programming. Yeah, and like I said earlier, just watch Star Trek: The Next Generation, Crash Course in Prompt Engineering. <laughs> Maybe well, not a Crash Course. It's kind of a long show. But... It's interesting because English majors actually are really good at prompt engineering, and mm-hmm. the people that are yeah. are. So it's like it, people that are that are not necessarily programmers are going to be opened up into this world of programming um, because they can they can express their things without having to learn a programming language and, yeah. and maybe they'll create some innovative things that 
you know, programmers aren't necessarily. Yeah, I guess maybe it evens out the playing field, right? Before yeah. the programmers were, had superpowers and the business people didn't. But now, you know, <laughs> if it's all about prompt engineering, then it's that's really about communicating clearly and yeah. expressing what problem you want to have solved. And then, yeah, now the programmers better, you know, start learning that. <laughs> Bill, Computer uh... science might be, uh, might be def you know, might not even be relevant at some point because if you're speaking a natural language, do you necessarily need to know what a hash map is? You know, I don't know. I, I think there's a case for, like what you learn in computer science is also abstract thinking and to think in terms of architecture. And mm -hmm. I think if you don't, if if you have, if you, nobody studies that at, at all, it's hard to even talk to an AI about what you want to what you want to achieve. So I think it's you'll 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 be a better customer to the to the AI if you have a at least high level understanding of. of if you're a product person though, and 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 you're talking to a developer, you don't you know those people don't necessarily have data structure backgrounds. I mean, maybe they start to get more and more, but it's 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 usually the problem that they're trying to figure out. Yeah, you know, not necessarily. The cool it's thing about true. And, and, a, and a good a good programmer will fill you in on that. They will cover that aspect of it. So maybe in the same sense, a good AI would would help you cover up for your lack of understanding of abstract thinking. Um, for example, maybe it would be a shame if people didn't have a good understanding of that stuff when they're trying to solve problems in general. You know? Yeah, yeah, it might make you a little bit helpless. I guess <laughs> in the same sense that that GPS and maps have made us kind of helpless in terms of navigation, navigating and finding our way around. Maybe, you know, as we get better and better tools, same way that Google has made us kind of helpless so I can look anything up so I don't need to know anything. I don't need to remember anything. Yeah. Uh, maybe that'll totally. just kind of accelerate that whole ignorance problem. Right. <laughs> or maybe... We had a, another question here, uh, Lance, from, I'll say, Gray, Gray Me. When will these tools be able to convert a code base and or program into natural language? This already possible. This would greatly accelerate onboarding people to a new project. Hundred percent. There, there's actually a company called uh, some some like doc document. I, I would look it up on Google. Uh, you know, uh, doc documentation AI or something. Um, I forget what it's called, but I know of a company already doing this where they can pull in your repository, your whole repository, and it will it'll auto generate a. Um, documentation for you and exactly what you're saying about onboarding people that is one of their main use cases it doesn't yeah. work well i haven't tried it but i know that, that, that like not now it's kind of the wild west with these kind of tools and 90 yeah. percent of the cases when i find a tool that solves x it doesn't it's it's something that potentially will solve x when it works well but it's all proof of concept yeah. so my, my yeah. guess is that that kind of thing will be great for a tiny code base for a large code base i really doubt it's going to work well now but I think it will probably. It, it just needs a bit of time. Large language models really suck at dealing with large code bases right now. But a lot of people are working on solving that. So it'll probably get there. It would be cool if, like, I really like cucumber tests. Have you heard of those? Yeah. So, like, if you, like, I'm not a test first person, but if you started off your project by considering uh, cucumber tests, it would be interesting because you could generate from the cucumber tests a documentation. Given, given when then things yeah. are yeah. yeah yeah bill uh bill in the chat had some follow-up thoughts on his new programmers just not getting in the prompt mindset they're stuck on the prompt side of things and i'm i'm sitting here thinking about it and it's it's really it was hard for me to it's hard for me to relate i don't know as soon as i saw this tool it just became it was very easy for me to think in terms of what is the question i want to ask what are the, what context can i give this tool to give it the desired output that I seek. Yeah. I'm not really sure how to solve that if someone I've never really I've never met someone who doesn't quite understand how to prompt. So I wonder what they're stuck on. Well I yeah, do I, think I, he's I think the key word he right. said was new programmers. So maybe right. they also don't have the background on how to solve these problems regardless. Well that's interesting. My my I've seen more of an issue with older programmers. Because they're so used to this is the way I do things, and that's you know I'm not going to ask that thing to do it. It's not going to do it. It's not going to succeed. It's mm -hmm. and so they kind of assume that they know better, and then they write a half crap crappy prompt, which results in half crappy code, and they're like, "See." <laughs> <laughs> so while the new programs I've seen are a little more open to like, "Oh, okay, it's this this is an interesting way of work. I'm going to try that," mm -hmm. but but I I think there's going to be a problem. I think there's going to be a huge divide in the programmer community where there's people who get it and people who don't. 
And the people who don't get it, it could be because their brains are wired a little differently, so it's harder for them to get used to that, or because of just stubbornness. They don't want to learn, or they're a little bit afraid. There could be all kinds of reasons why, but I think it's going to be, a, that's just going to be people who kind of get it, and then they will just become insanely productive compared to people who don't get it or don't want to get it. And that's going to cause a lot of friction when you have people doing the same job, but just one person's amazingly more productive. And that's why right. we still have COBOL programmers, right? Yeah, that, well, that's, COBOL is an interesting case. I think may, maybe they, they will benefit a lot from this probably. Because, <laughs> I mean, in, in, in modern high-level languages, it's pretty easy to write fancy stuff. But if you're using an older language, which, which is a lot more finicky and error-prone and things go wrong, then the large language models may be even more useful. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because writing C code to me was more of a craft. Yeah. Or an exercise almost. Like it was an exercise and a craft at the same time. Like it was fun on the, it was like a puzzle. It was fun to solve. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I kind of, it, it's going to be kind of a shame when that sort of thing goes away, or maybe it will be something that people just do for fun and put on YouTube. Like, look what I did. <laughs> Well, I, I have, a, I have a, a theory. It's just a theory. It's not, I have no empirical data behind it. But my theory is, is that as the large language models get better at dealing with larger code bases, and there's a lot of progress being made there, so I think it's going to happen. And then there's going to be an amazingly powerful use case of take this massive banking system built in COBOL and just change it all to Node.js or Python or whatever and just let it sit there. And the first thing it's going to do is analyze the whole code base. Then it's going to write tests. Um, and then it's going to port the whole darn thing, and it's going to verify mm -hmm. that everything works exactly as before, yes. both by static analysis of code and by running the right. tests. It'll mm -hmm. it, it might it might sit for a week, yeah, but, but it'll be done, and and it, right. that'll be quite amazing. And it really um, brings you hear. Um, I know we're getting close to time here, Lance, but just to piggyback off what Henrik just said, like there's a high failure rate of companies that try to rewrite their entire code base from the ground up, right? It's always like the dream, like, well, we've got this 30 years old code. The only yeah. way forward is to write it all from scratch. And they do. They get six months in and they say, oh, this is going to take us too long. And the yeah. failure rate of that is like 99%. Some <laughs> companies do it. You have to be focused and patient and understand the investment. Uh, but with AI tooling, like you just described, Hen Henrik, um, you could have it connect to your repo, pull it all down and it makes the idea of rewriting your entire code base in a modern framework or language or you know best practices it makes it feasible like it like yeah. you said yeah. it might take a week or two for this ai to run through everything and do it but like it really becomes feasible to rewrite your entire code base to modernize it and make it easier to work with yeah the language models understand human language human language is very weird and full of vagueness on you know but code is easy right code is super predictable and clean you can look at code and you know exactly what it does if so in that sense my feeling is that it shouldn't even be very hard um for it to mm -hmm. do that i think that that's more true in languages that don't have as many side effects like with c you're 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 having to ma manage memory this abstraction of memory and unless it knows what your abstraction that you've gone for your memory model it needs that context otherwise it's not going to be able to participate meaningfully yeah, I'm not much of a C programmer, but if it reads all the C code, every line of it, would that not be enough to understand exactly what it's doing? Yeah, it would. It would. I think. I mean, unless mm -hmm. unless it needed a mental model of why you stored memory a certain way. Right. Yeah, or maybe it's it maybe needs to know what what context is this supposed to run in and stuff like that. Right. Um, and the hardware yeah. limitations, that kind of stuff. Because yeah. most of the time when you're writing C, it's because of hardware limitations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, Graham had a question. Uh, I haven't had luck with that. The dream will be uh, that being, uh, I believe, converting code to natural language. The dream will be when it can translate a project into natural language and then be able to regenerate it into compatible code in any compiled target. Have you tried doing that with just one file at a time? Because I think it does a decent job, at least when I, in my higher level languages and class-based languages, it actually does a great job uh, documenting that and each method. I don't know what your experience has been. Sometimes it misses context. And obviously we've talked about that before where it's like, well, it's missing context because you didn't give it to it, but. I just had two conflicting thoughts in my head, which is interesting. <laughs> the first thought was, wait, that doesn't make sense. You take code, turn it to natural language, which is squishy and ambiguous. 
and then you turn it into code again. So that's like the Chinese whispers. You're going to get something different. So I was like, that's <laughs> bad. But then I'm like, no, wait a second. Maybe that's good. Because if you translate code base A to another code yeah. base, it's going to do exactly the same thing. So you took all your COBOL code and you got mm -hmm. new code that does exactly the same thing, including all the unnecessary wasteful bits. But if you translate it to natural language and say, what, is, what problem is this code trying to solve? And then it writes new code based on that. You might get clean and simple code that doesn't do everything the old code base did. It does it better. It does less, but better, for example. Mm, so I guess it's just a matter of, are you willing to trust it to do that? <laughs> it's also useful having the abstraction about what the AI thought you intended to do when you wrote the code. So you could be, so then if a human read it, you'd be like, well, maybe a human might think the same thing. And so maybe your code is actually not the greatest if it interprets That's a good it. Point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I might find some bugs along the way when I'm trying to do that. <laughs> yeah. Like your intent was this, but yeah, the it, the natural language interpreted it differently, and you're like, well, why did it do that? Yeah, I could just see a description like, yeah, here we're registering users, and unless they're minors, then this system is gonna is gonna crash on Fridays, and then we do this and blah blah. Like, wait a sec, what was that thing ever crashing on Fridays? <laughs> <laughs> Less if statements. I think we have another question coming in. Do you guys do you do automated code planning much? So. What I like to do is I call it the Martin Fowler prompting style just because it appeared on Martin Fowler's blog, but it was actually uh, some some other guy's name, uh, Chow or something like Ch Chai, Chow, um, who actually wrote about what they do at ThoughtWorks for for chain of thought prompting. And it's really amazing. That was the first time that was the first time I was like, really like, oh, my God, this could autom this could write code automatically. But it starts with you know, the, the high level stuff that you want to do and high level f feature. And then you break it down with a chain of thoughts by saying, you know, okay, write me a plan. Uh, once it's written a plan, then it, you can take that plan and you can take the individual pizza, pieces of the plan and say, hey, code this up. Mm -hmm. um, that works much like better. That, that yeah. sounds like a super powerful pattern. It is. Yeah. I've spoken to you about that pattern before, Lance, and it's, it's, it's powerful in a lot of different areas too. Like I'll I'll whip up what I call like mini design documents for ChatGPT, where I'll just give it like some, you know, I'll give it some blocks. I'll use like dashes to delimit. I'll say this is the beginning of what I want you to do, and I'll give it some some context, and then I'll be like, I I just create these mini design documents to kind of help put my thoughts in order. Um, yeah. Give it that chain of thought context. And then see what it outputs. The typical use case I have is like I'm, I'm, I need to generate a, a technical statement of work for a customer, right? Yeah. So I have all these notes from our conversation. I give it a, a rough draft of what a typical SOW looks like. I give it some history about this particular customer, and then just say, hey, you know, spit this out. And it it gets me like 85% there. It saves me hours, countless hours of, you know, meticulously drafting an SOW. And you can make these little design documents for, I even do it when I'm like, sometimes just writing some simple, some simple functions. Like you can give it these little design documents and you get better, you better results typically when I, when you yeah. give it that, give it a little extra thought in your context. And you, it, you, I mean, it's, it's, it's a generic pattern. So I'm like, I would use that if I'm organizing a wedding or something, give me the high level exactly. plan. And then yeah. for each bit of the plan, okay, I got to organize a band. I got to find a venue. Each one of those can be a separate thing. I can extract from the high-level plan. And then if I don't like the high-level plan, then I'm, it's very good. It didn't spend time making the details. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Lance, I got to get going. You want to you okay. sign us out here? Yeah, this, is, uh, this was great. Thanks, Henrik, for joining us. Uh, I think we're going to stop recording after that. Yeah, um, nice chat. Good questions. Please join us next week for continuing our series on serverless architecture with Jason Brown. He's going to be talking about uh, logging and monitoring in uh, the service architecture, mostly AWS Lambda. Please uh, feel free to join us. We have some subject matter experts as well. And uh, look forward to having everyone there.